Hello, I'm Peter Baxter. It's a pleasure to introduce this podcast as editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. In it, we're going to be discussing the paper entitled Spectrum of Neurodevelopmental Disabilities in Children with Cerebellar Malformations by Bolduc et al., which is appearing in the May issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Professor Catherine Limperopoulos, Professor at George Washington University, D.C., who is carrying out research at the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., overseeing MR studies in the developing brain. She is one of the authors. And by Dr. Andrea Peretti, a pediatric neurologist from Switzerland, who is currently a research fellow at the John Hopkins in Baltimore in the USA, who's also written a commentary on the paper. Please, can we start with you, Professor Limperopoulos, to discuss the background? So what prompted us to embark on a study that focused on characterizing the long-term neurodevelopmental consequences of cerebellar malformations in young children were a number of factors. In recent years, both advances in the perinatal care of newborns together with recent advances in more sophisticated brain imaging techniques have resulted in both an increased detection and increased accuracy of identification of cerebellar malformations in young children. However, in reviewing the literature, what we noted it was that despite these advances and the increased number of cerebellar malformations diagnosed among living infants, there was very little evidence available to us that systematically described the developmental outcome in this surviving population. And so we went on to conduct a cross-sectional study where we systematically identified young children between the ages of one to six who had a diagnosis of cerebellar malformation on uh, magnetic resonance imaging studies. Once we identified these children through informed consent, we recruited them to be part of a study that involved a battery of standardized neurodevelopmental evaluations, including assessments of motor performance, cognitive abilities, language skills, as well as social and behavioral development. So we studied a total of 49 children. And the mean age of this group was 28 months. And as I mentioned before, their age range was between one year to six years of age. What we demonstrated was that children with cerebellar malformations demonstrated a high prevalence of neurodevelopmental sequelae that clearly extended far beyond the motor domain and included cognitive deficits, language impairments, as well as social and behavioral difficulties. When we explored whether we could identify certain independent predictors of who did better versus who did worse, we found a number of factors that independently predicted outcome, and I'll briefly summarize those. One independent predictor of outcome was the presence of associated cerebral anomalies as well as chromosomal abnormalities. An additional very interesting independent predictor that we identified in the study was that those cerebellar malformations that involved the cerebellar vermis appear to be associated with greater developmental disability compared to those with cerebellar malformations that did not involve the vermis. We also demonstrated that about a third of children experienced impaired quality of life 
and that uh, lower scores in both their developmental and functional performance were important predictors of quality of life in these children. And so just to briefly summarize, the results certainly highlight that surviving children with cerebellar malformations appear to be at high risk for a spectrum of neurodevelopmental disabilities and that both developmental surveillance and early intervention programs must be and should be an integral part of their long-term follow-up. Can we move on to you, Dr. Peretti, to comment? Yes. I think the study by Boldo Ketal is an important study in pediatric neurology for several reasons. The first one is that the study shows again the important role of the cerebellum, not only for motor functions, but also for cognitive functions in children. And the study is very interesting, showing the role of the cerebellum, not only in acquired lesions like tumors or stroke, but also in cerebellum malformations. The second point that's very important is the number of patients, 49 patients. It's a huge number of children with cerebellar malformations. Cerebellar malformations are rare malformations. If you think, for example, the estimated prevalence of Schubert syndrome is about one over 100,000 people. And several of these patients have important cognitive impairment and difficult to perform a good systematic assessment of the cognitive functions. And the third point, because this number is important, is children with cerebellar problems may have limb ataxia or oculomotor problems impairing the performance of cognitive assessment. Therefore, I think the number of 49 patients is very, very important. And the third point, which is very interesting in this study, is the involvement of the vermis. Catherine pointed out the role of the vermis in the summary of the study, and I think it would be interesting to discuss what is the role of the vermis more in detail. Do you want to comment on that, please, Professor? Sure, I'm happy to comment on that. I think it's a very, very good question, and there is a growing body of literature, both in adults, actually primarily coming from adults, but also from anatomical and physiological studies, that is proposing an important role of the cerebellar vermis in the control and regulation of emotional processes. And in fact, Dr. Schmaman has put forth the concept of Olympic cerebellum residing in the vermis and paravermian regions, namely the vestigial nucleus, and has demonstrated that the midline structures of the cerebellum appear to play an important role in the modulation of emotion. And so far as the anatomical and physiological evidence, there have been a number of studies that have demonstrated that the cerebellum and the cerebrum have a feed-forward feedback relationship and that there are a number of centers whereby the cerebellar vermis and vestigial nucleus anatomically connect with some of the cortical limbic areas, including the hippocampus, the cingulate gyrus, 
the pregenual area, as well as the paralimbic neocortical regions, which clearly provide further evidence that impairment or maldevelopment of the cerebellum will affect these feedback feedforward loops that run from the cerebellum to the cerebrum and conversely from the cerebrum to the cerebellum, thereby resulting in impairment of social function, which can range from introverted, inhibited type of emotional changes to the far extreme where we can see aggression and uh, difficulties with uh, being able to regulate one's behavior, emotion, uh, and affective developments. Do you want to comment on that as well, Dr. Peretti? I think the world of the cerebellum is developing later embryologically than the cerebrum. And the idea, as Catherine said, is that the cerebellum regulates different functions of the cerebrum. The cerebellum is connected uh, with uh, almost all region in, in the cerebrum. Because of this connection, the cerebellum regulates uh, the different functions in the cerebrum. And uh, like Catherine said before, the midline structures of the cerebellum, the cerebellar vermis, has an important role You've both mentioned Professor Smarman's work and his concept of a cerebellar cognitive affective syndrome. How does the effect in adults relate to those in children, do you think? So as you mentioned, Peter, the cerebellar cognitive affective syndrome was initially described in adults who suffered injury that was to the cerebellum, be it hemorrhagic injury or stroke and or even tumors. Just briefly, the cerebellar cognitive affective syndrome really encompasses a constellation of impairments that include disturbances in executive function, impaired cognition, more targeted visual, spatial, and visual memory impairments, linguistic difficulties, for example, verbal fluency, as well as impaired social function. What these specific impairments ultimately culminate in are disturbances that sort of generally relate to an overall decrease in intellectual function. Now, what's interesting and certainly what this study and others are proposing is a developmental form of cerebellar cognitive affective syndrome which we can certainly translate into our pediatric populations, including uh, not only those with cerebellar malformation, but also those with acquired injury. So, for example, Andrea mentioned survivors of prematurity-related cerebellar injury, but similar features have been described in older children following cerebellar tumor resection. And broadly speaking, although our studies involve younger children, so children which are less than five years of age, our developmental tests do not really allow us to perform very, very discrete and refined measurements of specific functional capabilities because many of these high-level developmental domains have yet to be consolidated in children of preschool age. Regardless, though, our developmental measures really have enabled us to capture domain-specific impairments in young children that seem to very much 
be in line with the cerebellar cognitive affective syndrome that has been described in adults. So, for example, we see and report specific delays in cognitive development as measured by the Mullen Developmental Scales. We're also able to isolate expressive and receptive language delays in this population alongside growth and fine motor impairments. What's interesting is that in selecting potential uh, early screeners of social behavioral impairments, so in our study we use the modified checklist for autism, in addition to the child behavior checklist, we are once again able to identify a high prevalence of both internalizing and externalizing behavioral problems, as well as a high proportion of children who are showing signs of early autistic uh, features. Dr. Peretti, do, do you want to comment? Yes, I want to add something about behavior. There are several reports in the literature demonstrating the role of the cerebellum in other behavioral problems like attention deficit disorder or, or autism. And like Katrin said before, some of the children with cerebellar malformation or cerebellar developmental problem demonstrate some kind of behavioral problems matching some points with attention deficit disorder or autism. And I think the point that in, uh, in children with uh, attention deficit disorder or autism without uh, a clarified cerebellar malformation, there are similar behavioral disorders uh, can uh, or may support uh, the hypothesis of the role of the cerebellum in uh, these uh, behavioral problems. On a separate subject, in the study, a number of the children showed motor problems which were quite varied. I wondered if there was any correlation between the motor findings and the uh, cognitive findings, please. Yes, that's a very good question. They definitely were varied insofar as their motor performance ranging from mild to severe. The subgroup with severe motor impairments was very, very small. And so it was very hard to control for the relative contribution of significant motor impairments to cognitive deficits. But overall, we did run some subgroup analysis in those that had mild to moderate mobility restrictions and, and neuromotor and neurological impairments. And in that, the larger group, it did not seem to account for the extent and degree of cognitive deficits that we noted. But as I mentioned before, there were less than a handful of children who had pretty significant neurologic abnormalities, and one can certainly speculate that that may likely mediate outcome, broadly speaking and globally. Dr. Peretti, do you want to comment on that? Yes, I agree with Catherine. Patients with cerebellar malformation and uh, motor uh, functions problems, they have motor functions problems, and this may have an, uh, an important role in the cognitive assessment. Catherine's experience matched our experience from Zurich that the cognitive uh, problem we are assessing in children with cerebellar malformations are not only the result of uh, the role of the motor impairment uh, performing cognitive assessment. As example, we perform a, a cognitive assessment 
in a young woman with uh, Schubert syndrome, and this woman has almost a very, very, very mild motor impairment, but uh, almost no uh, dysmetria, and we found problems in a visospatial organization and in several executive functions. This means that this cognitive impairment is not only the result of the difficulty performing cognitive function assessment due to the impairment in the motor functions. If I can add to that, clearly we presented the broad strokes and, and the main uh, standardized outcome measures, but we also did a survey of families whereby uh, families had to fill out a questionnaire, and among the questions that they were completing, a key question that we asked was what they perceived as their child's greatest difficulties, and almost unanimously the group of parents highlighted and emphasized that the greatest difficulties that they perceived in their children, and of course this is proxy, but nonetheless an interesting point, were related to their cognitive and social behavioral impairments. So again, despite the fact that these children may have had mobility restrictions and motor and coordination and imbalance, what seemed to be a recurrent theme in the parental perception was that the principal difficulties insofar as day-to-day -day functioning for these children were related to their cognitive abilities and their social, emotional, affective impairments as well. If I can comment this point, this match absolutely the experience from Zürich, from from Eugen Balthas and from and my little experience too. Perform follow-up, clinical follow-up of of several patients with cerebellar malformation or with non-progressive congenital ataxia. And at the beginning, the children have a lot of motor problems, and during the follow-up, the motor problems are better and better and better, and at the end, cognitive problems are the most important limiting factor for the quality of life and for the daily life activity of these patients, absolutely. I know that the Swedish group, they looked at children with so-called ataxic cerebral palsy, and they found that a number would, even though the cerebellar problem on imaging remained unchanged, their ataxia would evolve and become more a motor dyspraxia. And in other words, it's improved with age in some. Is there any suggestion this might happen with other effects, such as the cognitive effects? So from our perspective, we're currently in the process of bringing our group back, who's now of school age, to perform a follow-up of more sophisticated neurocognitive and social behavioral evaluations, including neurologic and motor assessment. So I think that, from my perspective, that's a really good question and probably awaits further study. Uh, perhaps Andrea wants to comment on that as well. But the one thing I sort of wanted to mention just in hearing you bring this issue up of whether or not certain deficits may be transient or may improve and, and as opposed to others which may persist or perhaps worsen, I think one thing I would like to emphasize in the context of the developing cerebellum is that the cerebellum is also known to have a protracted developmental course. So, for example, the 
the extra granular layer of the cerebellum is actually not complete until 12 months of age after birth. And similarly, the cerebellar cortex reaches its maturity at around one year of age as well. Interestingly, both migration, proliferation, and arborization of the cerebellar neurons is actually not complete till almost two years. I believe it's about 20 months of life. So this really, in my opinion, raises a very interesting question about the role of early intervention insofar as being able to modify by circuitry, particularly as it relates to the cerebellum, and really approaching these types of disorders in a way whereby, yes, the bad news is that cerebellar injury and or malformations are associated with a high prevalence of broad spectrum of developmental disabilities, but conversely, we also know that the cerebellum, even after birth, and in fact for many months after birth, is still undergoing ongoing rapid development. And so there might be this critical window whereby intense early rehabilitative approaches that are very targeted to some of these deficits that we're describing may help to optimize the developmental progress of these children and help mediate some of these developmental disabilities that we're discussing today. Dr. Peretti, do you do want to add to that? I, I think uh, this is a very, very, very interesting point. I think we understand actually uh, only uh, only few of the influence of the developing cerebellum on uh, cognitive functions. I hope uh, we we can perform a podcast in five years or something like that and discuss uh, this point again. Hopefully, with more information, more results. That would be great. I'd be delighted. But can I ask if there are any other particular points uh, and also perhaps where next? I think if we really want to get to the heart of the matter and if we really want to understand what cerebellar injury means to the developing child, be it developmental required, it really is going to call for a multi-centered approach insofar as being able to put together uh, large multi-centered studies that can prospectively follow these children even before they're born, so beginning uh, through fetal life, using both serial advanced MRI techniques, but also developmentally appropriate standardized outcome measures at key intervals throughout the lifespan, will really allow us to get to the next stage insofar as understanding the evolution of cerebellar developmental disorders and or acquired disorders over time, but also at the same time beginning to institute potentially randomized intervention trials that can hopefully elucidate the potential role and benefit of targeted early intervention services in mediating and optimizing developmental outcome in this high-risk population. I think this is where I would see the field moving to next. Yes, I agree with Catherine. I think we we have to better understand what in the cerebellum play the role of this control on uh, the motor and cognitive function, maybe the volume, maybe the, the connection, the connectivity between the cerebellum and cerebrum, I don't, don't know. And I think uh, for the patients, particularly the beginning of uh, interventional trials would be the most important point.
And as I say at the beginning, cerebellar malformation are rare. And if you want to really understand the role of the cerebellum better, it would be important to have a great number of patients. And this is probably possible only performing multicenter studies. I agree. Thank you. Thanks very much. We've now come to the end of our podcast. It has been fascinating. I think it's very exciting, the whole field of what we're now learning about the cerebellum and its function. And I look forward very much to the future work that you're both doing as well. I hope everyone listening to this will also find it as beneficial as I have. And just to remind our listeners that the article is entitled Spectrum of Neurodevelopmental Disabilities in Children with Cerebellum Malformations by Bolduc et al., and it's coming out in the May 2011 issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.